Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, coverage of the shootings in Atlanta. So we all woke up earlier this week to this horrific news that eight people had been killed in Atlanta. The shooter has been apprehended and has been talking to police, but the coverage has been confused and unfocused and has tended to focus more on the shooter than on the victims of this crime. There's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we don't know about the shooter. There's there's so much we don't know about the women who were victims of this crime. And it comes in the context of a of a surge in attacks on Asian Americans across the country which has received some attention, but is relevant to the coverage of this case. So to untangle all of this and to help people who are covering this um, get a sense of how we can do better going forward in the days and weeks and months ahead, I'm thrilled to be joined by Kent Ono, who's a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Utah. He's the author of several books, including the co-author of a book called Asian Americans and the Media. And Diana Liu, who is a PhD in biology from MIT and a writer on science and on Asian American cultural issues. I'm thrilled to have them both. Welcome, Kent and Diana. Thank you. Thank you. Kent, let me start with you. You've read the coverage of these shootings in Atlanta. What do you make so far of of the coverage and especially of how the fact that that the vast majority of the victims were of Asian descent has been portrayed? I've read a lot, but I think that a lot of it so far has not focused on the women's lives mm-hmm. and their children and their families, uh, their friends. And, you know, that it's, it's interesting that you point that out because that's sort of one of the tropes of the early coverage of gun violence, usually, right? Um, is you get the, right, very, very quickly, you get these often superficial profiles, but quickly early profiles of the victims. What do you think accounts for the fact that we haven't seen that yet in this case? Yes, the coverage has really focused much more on the perpetrator, the shooter, mm-hmm. the alleged um, murderer, and very little attention has focused on the victims so far. In part, I think that is a result of access to the shooter, which often in cases like this, police do not have that access. So they have that access now and they're taking advantage of it because they can question him and he's a voluntary um, commentator on his own crime. But additionally, there seems to be a lot of um, ambivalence about covering the victims and their lives and the people they know and the people most negatively affected by this entire thing besides the people who died. And I think it is because people are not used to talking to Asian Americans Mm -hmm. in the media, uh, that media writers 
sometimes are concerned because they fear that they won't have knowledge of the language that the Asian people speak. Mm -hmm. And they're ill-equipped because they don't have translators, uh, interpreters who can help mediate conversations. So rather than like do the work to find people who can do that, do that for them, um, instead they focus their attention on what is most easily accessible um, to them. Which in which is what? Well, I think the shooter, uh-huh. the shooter and the police. Like, I was actually a court reporter, so I know how how much the police want to be talking to the media and controlling the narrative. So police are ready. They're let, ready to provide testimony about what happened, regardless of how much information they actually have. So it's always the hard work of the reporter to find sources that are not as easily accessible as the police. Um, but in this case, you know, we see most media going to talking heads and to uh, police and not going to people on the ground. Yeah, in fact, in this case, there was, I thought it was a kind of extraordinary thing because um, very quickly after the shooting, I think the same, early the next day, the police came out and said, oh, no, no, this had nothing to do with race whatsoever. It had nothing to do with the fact that the victims were of Asian descent. It had nothing to do, I think they even said like he hadn't had a good day the language that they use, which was amazingly um, inappropriate, I thought. And then, and then was like immediately went to this sort of sex addiction idea. And I, I thought, and that, that, that storyline was very quite quickly picked up, but I thought, how could you know that in, in the case of just a few hours after apprehending this guy? Yeah. I think this was a very unusual case where the shooter was willing to talk to the sheriff and to reveal information that police and sheriff um, officers often don't have. Yeah. And so that ended up being a bigger part of the story and of the information that was available that they could provide. Yeah. Simultaneously, from my perspective as a scholar, what it does is changes the levels of empathy Uh, and the direction of empathy. So in other words, because we know more about him, the police, the sheriff seemed very interested in providing a story that helped explain why he did these things, right? Rather than the trauma on the Mm -hmm. family, which is, as you said, what we ordinarily would hear more about. Diana, this brings me back so vividly to the piece that you did um, a couple of years ago, revisiting a New York Times story um, from 2018, which was a, the Times piece was about uh, the death of a Chinese American woman in Queens in New York. And your piece went back and sort of deconstructed um, the Times piece, um, looking at, and it gets to some of these issues about the police portrayal of what happened versus how it was portrayed. Um, in the media and then what you later discovered about the backstory of the piece. 
Could you just just for a minute walk us through the 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 time story and your story and how you think that some of the same lessons apply to what we're seeing in Atlanta? Um, sure thing. So Yang Song, she was a sex worker in Queens who um she fell from her balcony after a police raid. And so the New York Times was covering that and it was a very uh, sexualized portrayal that focused on exoticizing her and queens in general um, and focusing more on like her psychological state before the before her death which kind of insinuates that you know like it was a suicide or she was somehow responsible for it it didn't focus on the months of police harassment that she had experienced after um, she was raped by somebody who said that he was a police officer. We don't know whether that's true or not. Um, And she tried to report it. And instead of seeking justice, um, NYPD Vice tried to get her to be a mole and like snitch on other sex workers to try to get them deported. So after her death, there was a very strong organizing effort to, you know, like seek justice for her in Queens from like the entire Chinese American community um, by the like assemblymen uh, representing that community and by a bunch of reporters, Melissa Grant and Emma Whitford had done a really great job of doing investigative reporting at the local level, you know, for Queens and promoting sex work decriminalization. Mm -hmm. Um, But that kind of was not not really mentioned in the New York Times article, which was much more splashy and high profile. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of how I think the same elements of like uh, racialized and gendered oppression are affecting this case today. I think that we should think about it in two ways, like what has been reported and what hasn't been reported by like institutional media. Atlanta has um, some publications like the Washington Post, um, the New York Times, they they the New York Times said like there were like alleged suspicions of racism, you know, but uh-huh. most of the other publications didn't really mention that at all. They highlighted, you know, the sex addiction and the uh, oh, he just had a bad day. Uh, yeah. But on social media, for example, there's been actually more reports about the context of the shooting as well as the police response. Right. So um, E. Alex Jung, who writes for Vulture, he said, according to workers at Gold Spa, um, the gunman screamed that he would kill all the Asians. And mm-hmm. he linked a Korean language report, you know, so it seems like the people who were affected by what happened, who were there, they are willing to talk to reporters, but for whatever reason, you know, like maybe it was a language barrier or whatever, but institutional media didn't interview them. (laughs) Journalist Kendra Pierre-Lewis, she also noted that 
like she's getting more information from like non-traditional medias than from like institutional outlets uh and i think it speaks to the lack of you know like journalists of color because mm-hmm. uh th- there was one article that i saw which was kimmy yam's article on nbc news and she actually goes into the racism and sex- sexism and like the historical analysis of what is going on with these asian women <laughs> you know being targeted and what the link is to like sex addiction anyway um and uh as to that the three assumptions that the police report and you know like the media coverage has focused on um and the first one is like they just kind of say oh you know this is an asian massage parlor and this guy had a sex addiction and that is somehow used to justify what he was thinking why would you essentialize all asian massage parlors as like selling sex or you know some pl- some of the articles even noted like maybe they're trafficking women mm-hmm. right like uh one report said they didn't have any criminal records none of the three spas had any criminal records or anything and so i think that like you know if it was like a swedish massage parlor like this would not have been the logical leap the police and the media directly jumped to um even the reports that are coming out like i think i saw a couple today um that are more centering the victims they're still trying to do a positive sim by disassociating them from sex work. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, one report said that one of the victims was very invested in becoming an American, mm-hmm. you know? So like she's, she's a moral person. She wasn't a sex worker and that's why she's deserving of our sympathy. And I think that that speaks to like, you know, what we saw with Yang Song you know, like kind of blaming sex workers for their own deaths um, or saying like they're somehow responsible for a killer's motives. The response to that is, well, if that's true, then we have to police and regulate sex workers more. Mm -hmm. But like that's not necessarily going to be helpful because again, with what happened to Yang Song, like there was like police brutality and hara- like months of harassment that led to the death and possibly more directly we don't know and in a lot of murders uh, especially of like women of color sex workers trans sex workers their murders just don't go reported because their deaths are labeled as nhi which means no human involved you know, so like <laughs> more policing isn't going to help that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, the second thing is like he had a sex addiction. Okay, mm-hmm. well, the implication of that is that, you know, the killer, he had a mental illness. He had a disease. He's not responsible for murdering these eight people. I even read that he had, uh, it was framed as him sinning. Uh, you know, these stories about him being a sort of devout churchgoer and this sex addiction was a sin and that he was sort of like trying to atone for his sin. 
Oh my god, that's even worse. Yeah, I mean that you know that's like the flip side of the racism. Uh, you know, like because you have this uh racist narrative that supposes Asian women's guilt via their sexuality, and then the mm. flip side of that is like white male innocence. You know, mm. like he was devout Christian. It assumes mm. like whiteness and white maleness, and the American institution as a pure and innocent institution and it's polluted by you know the moral disease of mm -hmm. hypersexuality that Asians bring you know Did, what was number three that you were going to oh mention? well you know the, the the second excuse of he was having a bad day like yeah. well that's a direct contradiction to addiction you know like if he was having a bad day and making a cranky choice, like that's his choice, you know? So is he in control of his actions or not? And also like if a cop thinks that it's okay for somebody to kill eight people on a bad day, like, you know, again, with the, with the NHI um, framework, mm -hmm. like they're saying that these people these vulnerable people don't deserve to be recognized as human. You know, Kent, she, Diana makes, she, she brings up an, an important point about the history of all this. I mean, there, there's the short-term history, which is this attack happened in a year in which we've seen this surge of attacks against Asian Americans across the country, partly fueled by um, Donald Trump's language around the coronavirus. Um, so the, uh, in, in the coverage of the Atlanta shooting that you've seen, how much is that taken into account? But then talk a little bit about the more, the, the more sweeping history of, of how violence is, is covered in, in, in the press when it, when it, when it targets a specific community. It's interesting to me how the way that Trump using Kung flu Wuhan virus always attempting to shift the blame of the lack of control of the spread of the virus to China and to suggest that the disease originated in China as if humans had an intentional role in producing it. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, because they produced it and didn't control it, then our own lack of control is therefore justified. Mm -hmm. um, this rhetorical move to deflect attention away from the leadership of the United States inability to do what it should do to help the health of um, U.S. Americans by shifting attention to China as if China was responsible for that lack of effort, there's a parallel between him shifting the blame from himself mm. and his responsibility to that of uh, the parlors and the fact that they're there as temptations. And that mm. because he has a sex addiction, which is itself a blaming uh, component, shifting the responsibility from himself to his psyche Mm -hmm. And then shifting the blame from himself to the parlors, which affect his psyche and he has no control over. 
those are two types of white male efforts to deflect attention away from their responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a connection there. I also think, you know, that in shifting the blame to China, it's always taking people's attention to China and China's role and China's involvement and where it came from and origin stories so that it's hard for readers, it's hard for audiences, it's hard for listeners to be able to understand the disease as something that is unknown in origin, biological in its manifestation, uh, yeah. a phenomenon of chance and a phenomenon of um, randomness of, of life. That story hasn't been told. No one has said, to my knowledge, in the media that the origination of disease is a random event in the world mm -hmm. of biological origin. Have you heard that? Yeah, not, not so much. And it also, you know, it's also related to our own um, consumption habits and whatever. I think there's increasing evidence that, you know, disease like this will become more common under under a warmer earth, <laughs> which sort of comes back to us in terms of our own responsibility, right? I like that story better. Um, I, I empathize with humanity. Uh -huh. I empathize with humans' need to try to come up with rational explanations for uh -huh. unpredictable and unexplainable phenomena. Right. But... But it's I'm, still not sure, I'm not sure that the assertion without evidence that climate change is the producer or the, the causal factor that produces this or other viruses is, to my mind, any more sufficient um, than any other explanation without evidence. Yeah. So well, I, I empathize mean, with the the desire to do that because it calls attention to our responsibility to climate and to our need to come up with um, solutions for this human created problem. Yeah. But where I hesitate is in just jumping from one relatively easy solution to explain the emergence of a virus to another. Yeah. No, I hear you. So. This is for both of you. I mean, get, so, you know, I think what, one of the things we've seen over these last couple of days in terms of covering this shooting is an inability uh, on the part of a lot of the press to um, to look at this as a kind of multi-faceted, systemic, structural story. There's been this sort of, there's been this sort of uh, race to like, let's find the narrative. Okay, the guy's a sex addict. Got it. That's done. We understand. Let's go. Or he was racist and targeted Asian women. Let's just let's just, let's leave it at that. And and as it just always strikes me that these that it's much more complicated and it's much more complex, and all of these factors sort of come into play at the same time. I guess one, do you agree with that as a flaw in the coverage? But also, if we buy the idea that the the coverage is not. Um, have not been effective sort of what, what advice do we have for editors and producers to say, okay, let's restart. Here's the way you should be thinking about this. Yeah. I agree with all of that, Kyle. I, I don't, 
<laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the answer is, but maybe a start would be to have more um, journalists of color mm. in the room, you know, writing these reports because a lot of the um, a lot of the work in bringing forward these different narratives and different perspectives is from you know people of color whether they're journalists or not mm. um i i think that in general and this isn't just for journalism but it's for the way we think about things is like as a society i feel like we try to come up with the easiest solution so we don't have to worry about a problem you know we just want the quick fix mm -hmm. in medicine and you know the way we have like apps for everything mm -hmm. and i think that there's that and there's kind of just like not really any historical memory right like people now they'll they'll talk about full metal jacket but the like the racism against asian women mm -hmm. that's that's one of the reasons that is behind this uh shooting it's been around since um you know before the chinese exclusion act and so has the uh racialization of asians as carrying diseases mm -hmm. so it's like this goes so far back and it's so so beyond the scope of I think our understanding as a society that we just, we need more time to reflect and contextualize. And um, I, I would hope that there are journalists leading the way, um, but you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard for everyone when they're just trying to skate by, you know, like they're not being funded. Like there's just so many different problems coming together, you know, and it's not just like the Asian racism it's the fact that sex workers are oppressed in you know unique ways it's misogyny it's just a lot of things kent what is your do you have any thoughts for how people can rethink the coverage or should we rethinking the coverage right now first of all i want to just say how brilliant uh diana's comments have been um one thing Diana said that I think is absolutely critical is context. And you see this in reportage about horrific stories. They begin with very limited frames, frames that they have been used to using to cover stories. We call this framing theory to explain how journalists tend to draw on past ways that similar narratives have been described. But as time moves on, things do become more complex. But to my mind, historically, they they never really reach very far in terms of context. And that's where journalism and reportage in general can be improved. So in the case of violence against Asian American women and Asian women, rehearsing the, the very long history that Diana just mentioned about women's infantilization, their construction as dragon ladies who threaten men sexually, their construction as temptresses who have a lure and who connivingly create um, 
unwanted sexual desires in men in these heterosexual uh, narratives, uh, prostitutes, um, uh, as if all women are prostitutes and as if prostitution, prostitutes are bad. Lotus blossoms, uh, this idea that Asian and Asian American women are somehow automatically sexualized in ways that other women or men are not. Madam Butterflies, that they are, that Asian and Asian American women are willing to do anything uh, for their heterosexual men, um, including self-sacrifice. This long history is one context, which is only in part ever mentioned when thinking about the representations of Asian and Asian American women and why these ideas about Asian and Asian American women circulate globally. Another context, though, has to do with racism, and it pertains directly with this Atlanta horror. That is, people are wondering whether this is a hate crime or not, and they're having a very difficult time articulating why this murder, these murders are a racial act and a racist act. I'm pleased to hear that people are calling it racist, but I'm sad that in calling it racist, that's usually where it ends. There's very little explanation as to why it's racist. Part of why it's racist is because these women who died are silenced by media. And I think right now we are in the process of seeing a silencing of them in that their voices, their community, and their fa families and friends' uh, voices are not being um, uh, put out there. They're dehumanized. Dehumanization is a critical component of racism and of violence resulting from racism. They're constructed as if their lives don't matter by foregrounding the alleged perpetrator's life instead of theirs. In essence, they are experiencing a secondary murder by the media because they are being eliminated by not being discussed and not being described and not being humanized. So they are constructed as undeserving, which is a critical component of racism, and because there, because the media have made two errors. One, assuming that these parlors are necessarily there for sex work without any evidence. Two, that if they are associated with sex work, then they must be dismissed and they may be blamed. Therefore, Asian and Asian American women are being constructed as, by default, implicitly illicit, as if Asian and Asian American are participating in an illegal and therefore wrong um, set of practices that can result um, justifiably in violence. They are constructed as unimportant unimportant, blameworthy, and for the Asian American community, 
the narrative and the media construction around this is re-traumatizing. And in this sense, this comports well with what we know of racism. Kent and Diana, thank you so much. Thanks. Um, it was it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much, Kyle. I appreciate it. So you can read CJR's ongoing coverage of the coverage of the Atlanta shootings at CJR.org on our daily email, The Media Today, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.